gentlemen. Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Stubcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud here. Please welcome the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, and your host, Jeff Maldron. Hey everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers hosting another Studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. And again, sending our best wishes to Jeff Baldron, who we hope is back very soon hosting this Studcast once again. You have found the only podcast on the planet which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Get ready for 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the stud. Now, please welcome the originator of the Studcast and the man who changed the podcasting world with the Super Studcast. We step back into the ring, back into time with the Tennessee stud. Ron Fuller is here with us. And Ron, I know we're about to take a ride. What are we doing today? Oh, man, we're, we're, we're going to go on a good one today. We're going to cover a whole lot of topics today. We're jumping into uh, June of 1976, and we got a big star coming, and that's basically where we're going to open up our show today. We're welcoming a new wrestler to Southeastern, and this guy is going to become an instant star, which is not unusual for him. He's going to wow Southeastern fans in his first night, and uh, he's never going to leave Southeastern. (laughs) That's pretty amazing, man. He's he comes in uh, June of 1976, and he stays to the very end of my part of wrestling and my career. Uh, he goes on beyond that, but uh, he spends uh, years and years with uh, Southeastern, with Continental, uh, with USA Championship Wrestling. He just becomes a staple. He is part of the company, literally. And uh, we're going to talk about the highlights of the TV of Saturday, June the 12th. That's the one that will be the promoting the Friday night show following it, which is on Friday, June 18th. And we're going to get the results of not only that show of June 18th, but we're going to do something we haven't done in the last couple of shows. We're going to get the results of all of the southeastern cities that ran that week. Things are picking up dramatically. Uh, next, uh, we're going to do the first ever uh, southeastern championship title change in another city. Traditionally, Knoxville's been the center. It's where most title changes take place. In fact, this is going to be the first one that ever takes place outside of Knoxville. We'll discuss that one today. Mm-hmm. We're also going to discover and talk about what I call the ace in the hole for every booker that's uh, in a territory that suffers a, a injury disaster like we did on June the 4th, 1976 at the Southeastern Slaughter and where three guys got hurt in one night. And, uh, you know, uh, we're going to talk about a way to get out of that, a quick way to get out of that. And then uh, 
We're going to finally answer today's learning tree question, which is a very good one. It's actually about my family, an unusual one. And the gentleman asked, can you tell us something about lesser known Welch family members, which mm. there are quite a few of them, and some that went by different last names, quite a few of them, and your thoughts on each of them as a worker. So Dave, we're going to finish with a little family history in this one today, and uh, and I, I'm ready to go if you are, my man. When it comes to family history, uh, no doubt you've got plenty to talk about there. All right, Ron, we are saddled up. We're cinched in. Let's ride. Okay, so let's open up today with the arrival of that wrestler I spoke about in the opening here. And he's, he arrives basically at a perfect time, man. It couldn't be a better time for him to come in because of the injuries to so many baby faces on the night of June the 4th. He's going to become a legend in Southeastern wrestling. He's going to become a legend in Continental wrestling. He's going to become a legend in USA wrestling. He's going to become a Hall of Famer. And uh, he makes his debut. Two weeks after the loss, as I said, of three stars in one night on June the 4th. This guy dazzles fans, man. And I mean, he always has from the day he started, from the very beginning of his career. And he comes and basically pulls Southeastern, the company, out of a great hole that was caused by these three unexpected injuries. And it normally takes about four to six weeks to get a new baby face over in the territory. But this guy is no normal baby face. This guy was Bob Armstrong. Wow. And, uh, you know, Bob Armstrong is just a spectacular athlete. Uh, I want to give you a little history of Bob Armstrong as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I saw Bob Armstrong wrestle for the first time in Atlanta, Georgia, where I lived. I was a senior in high school in 1966. I was 18 years old. Uh, he was a former Atlanta area fireman. And he was a tremendous rookie. Uh, and it, for his first year in the sport, he was just unbelievable. He wasn't just impressive to me, though. He was impressive to everybody. So impressive that he became the NWA Rookie of the Year in 1966, his first year in wrestling. Uh, I saw him again, and, and we became friends, better friends, in Florida. And during my third year as a pro, about 1973, he comes to Florida, and he spends almost a year in Florida. He set that state on fire, just like he had done in the state of Georgia when he was there. Uh, and it was at that point, you know, long before I became a promoter slash owner of a wrestling company, that I said to myself, if I ever own the territory, this is the guy right here that I want in it. And uh, so in 1974, I become an owner of an NWA territory. And about that same time, I'm working in Memphis, a lot of shows for Jerry Jarrett. I'm the Southern heavyweight champion. And guess who shows up again? Bob Armstrong. And we get to be even closer friends. And I begin then to try to get him to come to Knoxville to wrestle for me full time for Southeastern. It takes a year and a half for that to happen. So on Friday night, June 18th, 1976, Bob Armstrong makes his first appearance in Southeastern Wrestling in the amphitheater in Chilhowee Park. Let's just talk about that card in the amphitheater that night. It was the second annual Southeastern Summer Battle Royal. 14 men vying for $5,000 prize going to the winner. First match on that main event, basically, there are a lot of matches on this card. But the main event, it was a loser leave Southeastern that doesn't mean just leave Knoxville. They leave Southeastern. They're gone entirely. 
Robert Fuller against Super Avenger number two, who was Tarzan Baxter from Dothan, Alabama. Yeah. And uh, so this is a loser leave. It's going to be the last match for one of these two guys. The Texas death match on this card, Jimmy Golden against Tor Tanaka. There's a six-man tag on this card. It's got Ron Wright and Mike Stallings with a new partner. People don't know who he is. Bob Armstrong's his name. And they're going to be against Carl Von Steiger, Norvell Austin, and Homer Odell. Carl Von Steiger's a new heel in the territory. Only there one week before, he's in the six-man tag up toward the top of the card already. The next match on this card, I put a lot of thought into it. Uh, Louis Tillette was the guy that uh, was in, involved in this match, and uh, he had just arrived the week before. Louis was an excellent heel and a pretty darn good booker as well. He was from Montreal, Canada, and he fit the mold of those great heels that came out of Montreal, the Vachon brothers, Joe LaDuke, Ronnie Garvin, great examples of tough heels, great heels that came out of Montreal, Canada. So I first saw Louis Tillet in the same year as I saw Bob Armstrong in 1966. He was working Georgia. He was a veteran already. He had booked some territories at that point already in his career. And he and my father had a tremendous run that, that year in Georgia, based around the Georgia Heavyweight Championship. This was his second appearance in Southeastern. He had been there the Friday before. But uh, Friday before, I had to use him as a babyface. I wanted to bring him as a heel, but I just had these injuries to two babyfaces. Me and Don Carson was both a babyface. And we are both gone overnight. And so I had to put him on this card as a babyface. Same thing I did the week before. So, you know, in dealing with this, the, with uh, Louis Tillette here, uh, and I really wanted to push Louis Tillet. I knew he had tremendous talent. So, you know, as a booker, it just hit me one day, you know, as angles often do when you book, when you do that for a living, you seem to be thinking about wrestling all the time. It just hit me. It struck me that, you know, there was stuck with this Ron Wright and Don Carson angle in which I'd worked the angle and Carson got hurt the same night, wasn't able to finish the angle, basically. It was a lost angle, but uh, I, I, I got to thinking about it. Uh, you know, if I took Louis Tillette and I put him in the right position, I'd be able to get a new heel over fast, plus put the heat instantly back on Carson. So I talked to Don Carson two days on a Monday, two days after he had this bad knee injury, and I knew he was going to be out, but I also knew he was going to need some money before he was going to be back, able to get back in the ring. As most wrestlers, he didn't have an insurance policy. He didn't even have insurance to get his knee done. He had to pay for that himself. And he certainly didn't have cash in the bank to last him very long. So I wanted to get him back involved before he could actually wrestle. So we talked about an angle that I had in mind. And uh, I'm going to kind of explain that angle and the way a Booker's mind works for fans out there. With this angle, I could lay a foundation for Talay's arrival just one week after Carson got hurt. It's not going to be just a coincidence, you know. This angle is going to make it something other than just a coincidence that along comes Louis Tillette immediately after Carson gets injured. Carson, he's going to be secretly involved in this arrival of Louis Tillette. Uh, and he was there, basically, Tillette was, to help Carson get even with Ron Wright for the injury Ron Wright gave to him. So Louis is going to arrive as a babyface, 
and he's going to get friendly with Ron Wright. And then he's going to push an issue and find a spot in which he can get Ron Wright to tag up with him, just like Carson had. When Carson turned babyface, he wanted to tag with Ron Wright, and then he turned on Wright. Well, Louis Tillette's going to do basically the same thing Carson did. And Carson's behind all this. He's planning it. So the partner, he's going to turn on Ron Wright, just like Don Carson did. And Carson is going to return into the storyline on crutches because he's going to be on crutches for a long time. He's got a legitimate injury, and he's going to manage, guess who? Louis Tillette. (laughs) So uh, fans will discover that the mastermind behind this whole plot with Louis Tillette against Ron Wright is going to be Don Carson trying to get even. It's going to create a long program for me that I'm going to need in the summer of 76 because I'm out. That we're short of baby faces, good baby faces that are over. And thank goodness we got a guy like Bob Armstrong that's shown up. But uh, this is a great angle. It's going to give uh, Carson the ability to come back as a manager, be able to make himself some money. And it's also going to put a lot of heat fast on the brand new heel, Louis Tillette. And it's going to put heat on Carson as well once people figure out Carson was behind it. Carson loved the idea. And he knew Louis work as a heel. He'd familiar with seeing Louis work, and he'd worked for him when Louis was booking. So he knew Louis's ability, and Carson thought it would be a great angle. So on this card, on this night, Louis Tillette is on there as a babyface, not as a heel, and he's working against a heel, Don Lambert. Soon he's going to make his turn to heel. When he does, it's going to add another great angle to business in the summer of 1976. So let's get back six days earlier to the television on Saturday afternoon of June the 12th that's going to publicize this TV. Now I'm just going to do some of the highlights, not going to give the whole TV. This show is a really good show. I mean, it opens, less opens the show with a bang right off the bat for the fans. He reminds fans that last week Carson was injured on Friday night and did not show up for the TV the following day for last Saturday he's talking about. Carson didn't come to TV on Saturday. And then he held up a newspaper that he had bought that morning on his way to TV. And he said, as he looked at the paper, he said, I'm going to read you a short note that's in the sports page this morning of the Knoxville Journal. And this is what he reads. This is what the Knoxville Journal had posted that morning in the paper. Don Carson, former Southeastern heavyweight champion, has undergone knee surgery in Cleveland, Tennessee to correct a cartilage damage injury. He will be out three to six months. The television crowd exploded. Wow, they loved it. Oh, hell yeah, Ron Wrightston got him, man. He's out three to six months. So, <laughs> uh, so Les, is, you know, Les is really into this television, and he, he is really on the spot. So immediately he says, could Jimmy Golden come out here and join me at the set? And when Jimmy did, They watched a video of the night before in the amphitheater. That was the night that Carson didn't show up. And they watched the fact that Jimmy was going to win by forfeit. So, you know, there wasn't much to watch with that. They videoed the forfeit procedure, and Jimmy was awarded to win by forfeit over Don Carson. But the video continued. And the Super Avenger number one, who wasn't involved at all, had no reason to come down there, came down to ringside. He got the PA away from the announcer, and he challenged Jimmy. 
after he made this huge long speech about his love and respect for the great Don Carson, friend of mine for my life. And he was, this was literally a true story. Mm-hmm. This is Dick Dunn, who was partners with Don Carson in Australia with me in 73. These guys were very close. And he said, my partner and my friend and my buddy, he's got a torn up knee and Ron writes off. You know, he went through a long deal. And finally, Jimmy says, hell yes, get in the ring, shut up, and and then let's see what you can do. And he wasn't too smart. He went around to the grandstand side of the ring. He jumped up on the apron. And instead of paying attention to Jimmy, they rang the bell. And he was, instead of looking at Jimmy, turned facing the big grandstand, had his hands up in the air. And Jimmy just turned him around, flying married him over the top rope, drop kicked him, and then went up on the top rope. And when Dunn turned around, first thing he saw was both Jimmy's feet in his face. It drop kicked him across the ring. My gosh, it was an unbelievable bump. Jimmy covered him, and Jimmy beat Dick Dunn in less than 10 seconds. I was like, wow. wow. So then, you know, the, then the fans watch this in the studio. They've got the monitors, and I'm sure all the fans at home are going, wow, look at that. Jimmy Golden beat that old Avenger in less than 10 seconds. So Jimmy's booked the following Friday night, and it takes his death match against a son of a gun that's really tough toward Tanaka. So Jimmy goes right straight to the ring after he's watched this, after he's gotten himself over, and he gets a match and a big win right there on television. Great way to start the show. Personality profile in the middle of the show was Ron Wright and Mike Stallings, and it contained a video of their match from the night before with Tor Tanaka and Novell Austin, managed by Homer Odell. In this match, there was more fighting outside the ring than there was inside. Homer Odell made the odds two against three. Once it got out of control, he got involved too. So they were getting a partner. The whole concept of this personality profile is you're getting a partner next week that'll even out the odds, and it's going to be a six-man tag. Then they announced to them, uh, Les announced to them, that your partner is a guy named Bob Armstrong. So Les asked him a question right off the bat. He says, uh, do any of you, either of you two know much about Bob Armstrong? So Mike Stallings, who was a great high school athlete, in fact, he was a drafted baseball player, professional baseball player from Atlanta. And uh, because he was an Atlanta boy, he knew a whole lot about the star that he'd grown up watching, Bob Armstrong. So Ron Wright followed up the Stallings story with a story of his own about wrestling once against Bob Armstrong and how he felt he almost got his arms ripped off. He said, this guy's as strong as a gorilla. He goes, he goes, so this profile basically it really set Bob Armstrong up perfectly for his debut six nights later. So after the profile was over and the next live match was through, Homer and his men were invited out by Les. And uh, they came to the set. Les reminded them that last week, the Southeastern officials promised they would announce the punishment for the three of them for hurting me and Dick Steinborn in a match they weren't even involved in. It was for the actions of June 4th, uh, like I said, and they sent two champions out, period. The Steinborn Mid-American champion, and I was a Southeastern champion, sent us to the hospital, basically. Uh, Homer said, smiling about what was to come, the announcement, he didn't seem to care much about it, what it was going to happen. Uh, Tanaka and Austin, they were standing up behind him, and they were looking very concerned when Les, and Les took his time about this, and he announced that both Tanaka and Austin 
we're going to be fine, $5,000 each. That's a lot of money back in 1976, a heck of a lot of money in 76. Uh, so they went crazy. And so did the studio audience. <laughs> uh, they were crying and the audience was uh, celebrating. Uh, Homer kind of snickered. <laughs> you know, he's sitting there. They're standing behind him and he, he turned toward him and he and you could tell he was faking it and he was said, "Oh God, I'm so sorry, guys. Uh, you know, geez, man, that's horrible. They did that to y'all." They turned back to Liz and he had a smile on his face again. And he goes, "You know, that's that's pretty fair of him. You know, he goes because they're right. I never laid a hand on either one of those two guys. You know, and they didn't do anything to me." And he got up and he was going to leave. You know, and he thought, "Well, that's good. They find these two and they ain't doing nothing to me." And Les says, whoa, 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 uh, Homer, uh, come back here. Well, Tanaka and Novell, they were really, they're pretty pissed. And uh, they were mad at Homer, too. So they just went on to the dressing room. So Homer comes back and he sits down again by himself this time. Les took his time and he really set Homer up perfectly for this. He, he talked to him about the Southeastern officials and, and the importance that the officials felt that managers had in determining what wrestlers did while they're working for that, you know, it's, it's managers that sometimes cause the problems that wrestlers wouldn't get to that level and managers do. And that the officials felt like Tanaka and Austin had definitely some responsibility for what happened at the Southeastern slaughter that Les mentioned it again, the Friday before, but that Homer at this point was the man most responsible for the actions. Well, Homer smiled, boy, it certainly disappeared off his face. So Les told him that your punishment, Homer, is twofold. <laughs> so he says, part one, you're going to be in the ring <laughs> next Friday night with Ron Wright, Mike Stallings, and Bob Armstrong. <laughs> and you're also going to be in the battle royal after the six-man tag is over. So Homer exploded a little bit, you know, God, what the heck, man, you know, and uh and the studio audience loved it again. They were cheering. They they liked the idea. And then he started screaming at Les about it. And that none of this was my fault, he was saying again. And, you know, he got up to leave. You know, this wasn't my fault, you know, and I never touched him. I never put a hand on those guys. And uh, he got up to leave. So Les calls him back again. <laughs> he goes, wait a minute, Homer. I'm not finished. Sit down. <laughs> so. Homer's got to sit down and take a little more of it. So, you know, he said, uh, you know, Tanaka and Austin, they got a $5,000 fine. And he goes, the second part of your punishment, it's going to be financial for you, Homer. <laughs> Homer's like, oh, whoa, no way. You know, he's already knows that they got fined 5000 So Les says, I guess you want to know how much your fine is, huh, Homer? Uh, no, no, I don't want to know. And then Les says, it's 10000 It's double there. So, Homer turned his chair over backwards, fell into the set, and he's just rolling around on the floor. And the cameramen, they were expecting something's going to happen. So they were right there, Johnny, on the spot. They got the camera over top of the set, and they watched him roll around on the floor. And he tried to get up, and he stumbled, and he fell. He's screaming at Les Thatcher, what, $10,000, $10,000? Nobody's got $10,000. So it was really funny. I mean, the fans at home got a big kick out of it, and those in the studio got a big kick out of it. So Les closed the segment pretty quickly. Homer's still laying on his back, and Les says, okay, we'll be back in a few minutes. It was a hell of an ending to that part of it. So Homer and Tanaka and Austin, Tanaka and Austin in the ring, the very next match on TV. 
And they took the whole deal out on those two boys. They had two job boys on TV, and they bloodied up both of them, and we had to carry them. Guys went down and carried them out of the ring. And then they got on the last interview of the show, and Homer ran less off the set. Get out of here. I don't want you here, you know, and we're going to talk about what's really going on here. And he told everyone in the studio at home that there was a war now between him and Southeastern Wrestling and that the Southeastern, so-called Southeastern Wrestling officials just stunk. That was all it was to it. He added that the first $5,000 to be paid back was going to be won the next Friday night in the Battle Royal. And uh, that's where the first 5000 was coming from. Uh, the scene had been set uh, the following Friday night. It w- we had put more than 5,000 people in the amphitheater again. We had dropped off by about 500 people the, the week before after the guys got hurt, me being one of them. And now we're going to jump back to 5,000, and we're going to begin the assault at the all-time record of 6,000 in that facility in that Chilhai Park uh, by the end of that summer. Man, it, it really sounds like great TV. How did the matches go the next Friday night after that big buildup? Well, Butch Malone uh, won the first match over Super Avenger. Uh, it was a very good match. Obviously, two great workers. Dick Dunn in the first match, it's not a spot he's accustomed to. And neither was Butch Malone. But uh, that tells you that the talent is improving. Louis Tillette and the Don Lambert match was more than just a match to me as a booker. As I mentioned earlier in the studcast, Louis was going to get the first push to the top of the heels or in that direction to fill the void of Don Carson's injury. Had to have it. And I'd made up our mind, and Carson was all for it, that Louie was the man. So this night, he won his second match in a row, and he used a gimmick out of his tights, just like he did the first night. And he was supposed to be a babyface against a known heel of Don Lambert. It seemed odd that the babyface is winning with a gimmick in his tights. So when he won that way, the crowd cheered, but they weren't too enthusiastic about how he won it. They seemed to be confused, and that's just exactly what I wanted as a booker. (laughs) I watched it. I was like, wow, this is going to go. It's going to be good. So the next match was the six-man tag. Ron Wright, Mike Stallings, and newcomer Bob Armstrong were wrestling against Carl Von Steiger, Norval Austin, and Homer Odell. And it all broke loose in this one. And it's going to culminate in the Battle Royal. This match is going to be the begin of the lead-up to the Battle Royal that night. Mike Stallings got hurt in the early part of the match and had to be carried back to the dressing room by Butch Malone. Most of the match was Bob Armstrong. Out on the apron of the ring, they had Ron Wright trapped like they had done uh, several times and in tag matches before, especially the night that Carson got his knee hurt. Ron Wright was trapped in the corner for a big part of that match. He's back in the corner again the same way, trying to get to Bob Armstrong to make a tag to keep from getting beat. And when Bob Armstrong finally got the tag, he made one of those tremendous comebacks that Bob was famous for. The 5,000 fans in that arena that night sounded like 10,000. And they got their first taste of a Bob Armstrong comeback. I mean, wow. He stood them up. It was amazing. Uh, and he took the win right there. He got a small package on Home Road, Dell, and they really blew the roof off. There was no roof. Uh, you could hear them in downtown Knoxville, no doubt. So Austin jumped on Armstrong as soon as he got the win over Homer. Von Steiger, who was the other guy involved in that match, 
he threw Ron Wright over the top rope. And Steiger and Austin and Homer all started working on Bob Armstrong. And they got him bleeding. Uh, Louis Tillette came down. And uh, oddly enough, you know, he helped Ron Wright back to the dressing room. You know, it was like, uh, wow, we're going to get started into this angle right here. So Louis comes down. Ron Wright's out there on the floor. He just comes and gets him. But he don't pay any attention to the fact that three guys are beating the hell out of Bob Armstrong in the ring. He's more interested in just helping Ron Wright get back to the dressing room. So Jimmy Golden has to come down to the ring, and he jumps in the ring to help Armstrong. Well, Austin catches him coming in, and he brings him in the ring, and he pile drives him. Uh, Armstrong ends up fighting his way out of the three guys against all of them, and all three of them run. They get on the floor. Tanaka comes down. He joins them at ringside. And Austin and Von Steiger, they go to the dressing room. But Homer and Tanaka stay there to ring. Bob's bleeding. He's still bleeding. He gets a huge ovation from the crowd as he left the ring and goes to the dressing room. Jimmy's in the next match, but he's still down from being piledrived by Norvell Austin. And uh, two referees, you had to have two referees for two ring battle royals. Both of them are kind of helping Jimmy. Tanaka entered the ring. And he gets ready to start the Texas death match. And uh, Jimmy Golden's obviously hurt already. He's not going to get a very good start here. And uh, Homer grabs the PA from the announcer, Phil Rainey, and he demands that we start the Texas death match. Obviously, Tanaka's got a huge advantage here. So Golden's actually, he's finally gotten to his feet, but he's hanging on the ropes in his own corner. And uh, when Phil Rainey's asking him, are you ready? He starts shaking his head like he is, but he's not ready. I mean, you know, nobody's ready for Tanaka, really, even if you're in great shape and you haven't been hurt. And Jimmy's hurt already. So they ring the bell, and boom, Tanaka charges across the ring. He starts in karate chopping uh, Jimmy, and uh, within 30 seconds, Jimmy's face first on the mat. Tanaka rolls him over, pins him. They give a 30-second rest period to Jimmy. And they start counting to 10, and he can't get to his feet. So Tanaka wins a Texas death match in probably less than two minutes. And I'd never seen a Texas death match one that fast. Fans didn't like it. They booed like crazy. It got a lot of heat for Tanaka and for Homer, and that's what we wanted. Next match was that loser leave town with uh, Robert Fuller and Super Avenger number two. And the loser leaves not just Knoxville, but they leave Southeastern Wrestling. So Robert won about 80% of this match, carried most of this match. And uh, when he got toward the end of the match, Super Avengers and just barely hanging on. And he nails Rob in the stomach. Rob grabs a headlock. Uh, Super Avengers shoots him in the ropes. And when Rob comes off, they collide. Rob goes backwards, head first out into the concrete. And uh, Super Avenger goes back and slams into the referee. Now the Avenger and the referee's down. Rob's down on his back on the outside of the ring. Down comes Super Avenger number one, Dick Dunn. And he he grabs Rob up and he pile drives him on the concrete. And I was like, wow. So I'm watching it. Then he he gets Rob and he throws him back up into the ring. Well, when I saw him pile drive him, I started down to the ring. I've got my arm in a sling. I'm not able to do much, that's for sure. But uh, I've got to do something here. So after he gives him the pile driver, then I grab him, the Avenger rolls Rob back into the ring, and before he can get in the ring, I grab him from behind by the back of his mask, and I run him head first in the steel posts. 
So now the Avengers on the concrete and Rob's in the ring, but they're both down. The referee finally gets up and he starts to count them both out. Whoever gets their feet is going to win this match. And so Rob gets up at the count of eight. The Avenger never gets off the concrete. Referee rings the bell and he raised Rob's hand. It was going to be the last night that the Avengers and the Super Avengers and the Superstars were ever going to wrestle in Southeastern Wrestling. Uh, it was a really, really good match. So then the battle roll for 5000 bucks is the last match. All seven of the heels involved in the card that night come to the ring. Only four baby faces are able to come down and be in the battle roll. Mike Stallings is out. Robert Fuller's out. He can't get out. He's just been piled-drived on the concrete a few minutes before the match. And Jimmy's really out. He's, he's been beat the hell out of. So none of those three can make it into the Royal at all. And only four baby faces are in the ring. It's going to be Ron Wright. It's going to be Butch Malone and uh, Louis Tillette, who's really not a baby face, you know, but nobody knows it, and Bob Armstrong. So Armstrong's already bleeding from the match before. Uh, he's taped a cloth bandage around his head. It's all bloody, too. But it's something to keep the blood out of his eyes until they're going to yank it off, which they are going to do right away. So it was the most lopsided battle royal I ever saw. Uh, it almost had twice as many heels in the ring as there were baby faces at the beginning of it. So it looked like a massacre, the whole thing. The last four in the ring was Homer O'Dell, Tor Tanaka, Norvell Austin, and one baby face, Bob Armstrong, by himself. So Bob was already bloody. And I mean, he was bloody when he left the ring the first match. Now he's bloody all the way down to his tights. He's just, he's really, really looking bad. So he finally wins this battle royal against those three heels. He throws them all out, and Tanaka's the last one to go. And when he tossed Tanaka out, that 5,000 people went absolutely berserk. That was the last thing they thought was going to happen. And the ringsiders and the fans from the grandstand, they mobbed him when he left the ring. I'd never seen anyone over that strong and that fast the first night they wrestled someplace. It was just amazing how much the fans got into Bob Armstrong the very first time they saw him. He was definitely going to help me, obviously, and my company to get past the Southeastern slaughter for darn sure. Man, that is an amazing night, Ron. This is a great place for taking a break. We'll do that right now, and we'll come back with the rest of that week's results coming up on this Studcast. Every Super Studcast is unique. Super Studcast number 29 has been the all-time record setter so far at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. It is the longest Super Studcast so far at more than four hours. It is much more than just Ron Fuller and Brian Last telling the Jim Barnett story. Everyone wanted a piece of this one to tell their own experiences with the legendary Jim Barnett, Jim Cornette, Kevin Sullivan, Dr. D. David Schultz, Robert Fuller, Les Thatcher, Jimmy Golden, and Southeastern Pensacola TV commentator Charlie Platt all contribute to this truly historical look at maybe the most successful, controversial, and colorful wrestling promoter in the history of the sport. At tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Only $2.99. 
now, get ready for Super Studcast number 30 with the Hall of Famer of many names, Mick Foley, Mankind, Cactus Jack, Mr. Sacco, and more. Join us with Ron's brother, Robert Fuller, for an unforgettable ride into the career that spanned from old school into WWE. Part 1 will be released on Tuesday, June 16th. Super Studcast. Just keep getting better. Welcome back. It's another Studcast with the Tennessee Stud Ron Fuller. I'm David Summers filling in once again. And Ron, the crowd size in Knoxville on that Friday, June 18th, it had to be pretty impressive that evening. Well, it was, uh, Dave, you know, because uh, we had dropped off after my injury and after uh, Steinborn's injury, and he's not on any card. Carson's not on any card. I mean, we took a pretty good tumble at the at the gate the week before, and we come right back and climb back into the 5,000s again, which is really good. The fans had a great night of action that night, and they witnessed some true feats of strength from the new babyface Bob Armstrong. Uh, gross gate that night was close to 15 grand. The total talent payoff was about 4,200. Wow. And that was paid to 14 wrestlers and two referees. Now, there you almost always had two referees on a card with a battle royal. So uh, the two referees got about 125 each. Butch Malone, Dick Dunn, Don Lamerick, and Louis Tillette, they all got 200 each for the first two matches. And then the top eight guys got $320 each that night. Bob Armstrong came to me after the payoff. And I think it's the only time I can ever remember a guy his first night there coming to do this with me. But he came to me after he got his payoff. And he told me that if I paid like this every night, he was never going to leave. It was like a joke. We <laughs> laughed about it, right? right. You're like, oh, well, that's pretty cool, Don. Yeah, you're never going to leave, huh, Bob? You know, and, and by God, turns out he never did. <laughs> <laughs> so he really did like the payoff. And, uh, you know, he becomes an integral part of Southeastern and Continentals, USA's, all of them's, uh, yeah. you know, the success. He's just a great guy. So the rest of the week, we had battle royals in every city because when you advertise it and it's the big thing on TV, you might as well have it in all your smaller cities as well, these battle royals. And so these battle royals in the smaller cities were smaller. You didn't have to have 14 guys. I cut those cards down to 10 guys, and I took off a couple of matches, and uh, it made the payoffs better for the guys. So on this week, I'm just going to cover the towns that we wrestled in this particular week. From the Saturday, June 12th, that the TV aired that showed that we were going to have a battle royal in Knoxville the following Friday. We ran that night on June 12th in Harlan, Kentucky, and we had uh, 2,700 fans on a Saturday night. The following two days later in Hazard, Kentucky, where we had our own TV now, we had 4,000 fans in Hazard, Kentucky on a Monday night. We had uh, Tuesday night in Johnson City, 2,700 fans. Uh, Wednesday night in a little town called Jellico, up on a mountain, going up 75 toward uh, toward uh, Ohio. We had 2,300 fans. That was on Wednesday. And then on uh, Thursday night, we ran in a city called Big Stone Gap, Virginia, and had another 2,500 fans. So that was a total of 14,000 fans, not counting Knoxville. And when you add that 5,000, it was in Knoxville. The total number of fans to see Southeastern Wrestling that week was 19,000 people. I mean, 
we're getting into a lot of darn homes. We're, we're creating a tremendous number of fans. Southeastern uh, wrestlers that week averaged driving about 700 miles, which was a long week. But it was nothing compared to, say, 2,500 that the guys in Florida Territory drove and over 3,000 miles that the guys in the Mid-Atlantic Territory next to us in the Carolinas drove. So, you know, these guys were making big money, drawing big crowds and being home by midnight every night. Pretty darn amazing deal. Yeah. Uh, Southeastern wrestler, they averaged making $800 that week as an average, and some of them made over 1000 so in 1966, that equals to making about $4,500 in today's money. So, you know, I got some guys here that no wonder Bob says, man, that was a good payoff. I mean, these guys are making some big money in 1976. Uh, in fact, I'd give you just an idea of how big of money we're talking about. $4,500, some guys made $4,500 that week. I'm about to get ready in the next few months to buy a Cadillac for a tournament to be held in Knoxville, and a brand-new Cadillac's only 6000 So they could made almost enough money in one week to buy a brand-new Cadillac. So <laughs> I had a bunch of smiling faces in the dressing room, I can tell you that. And this was about the time that Southeastern started to become the best little territory in the world that we got to be called, and uh, but we weren't finished yet. Hey, that really is huge money. And you're talking about buying a car. Just saw a thing the other day about 1977. And the money you're talking about is just right on it. Uh, the, the difference between a two wheel drive truck and a four wheel drive truck was only $200. So, but, but a Cadillac for that amount of money and that day, that's, that's pretty awesome. All right. So you said in the opening that we were going to hear about the first Southeastern title change in a city other than Knoxville. What is the story uh, on that? And is that because Knoxville was always just the larger city and that's typically where the title was going to change anyway? Yeah. I mean, you know, that's basically it. And it was, we were fairly unique territory in most territories. Florida, for instance, you had Tampa, you had Miami, you had Jacksonville, you had Orlando, you had a lot of big cities. Uh, in the Carolinas, you had Charlotte and Greensboro and, oh, you got all the way up into Virginia. I mean, you know, they had 10 major cities, but only had one major city. So, you know, you want to change those titles in the, in front of your biggest crowds yeah. and you want to change it in a major city. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it just seemed like that it was time to do that. So uh, after the Southeastern Slaughter Night, um, my Southeastern belt was given to my brother on the TV the next day. And uh, he and Jimmy were already the present tag team champions. So Rob's sitting there with two belts. So I, I realized that we needed a heel to become the Southeastern heavyweight champion. And by God, we had one monster damn heel there, man. And uh, Tor Tanaka was just wow. And he had that wow factor. I mean, people were scared to death of him. So I said, man, we got to get the belt on Tanaka. And uh, that's going to put actually more heat on Homer and his men, obviously. So the only other city that we had that ran every week was Johnson City, Tennessee. So I wanted to give that city a shot in the arm. So I figured a title change there would forever make fans think that it'll happen here again. And that's why it's so important to sometimes do something that fans aren't expecting to happen, and it makes fans out of them forever. So you got these really loyal fans up there in that Tri-Cities area that are filling that building up there. 
And uh, they got to see a, a title change hands right there in their building. And uh, I knew it was going to happen, so I sent the TV production crew yeah. from my station uh, at WBIR to Johnson City that night to video it. The card had on the following Tuesday night, June 15th, the main event, Fisher and the champion, Robert Fuller against Tor Tanaka. And that night, like I said, I sent that crew from WBIR. And the next week, that show was going to air on WJHL, the local Johnson City, uh, Kingsport, Bristol television station there. And uh, it was going to show uh, title changing hands right there in their Tri-Cities. So it was a heck of an idea. And uh, we showed the match back then on the following Saturday on June 19th in uh, Knoxville on that television. Is a good idea, a good concept. In fact, the main event for the next studcast in Knoxville, the one we're going to be talking about Friday night, June the 25th, that main event is going to be Tor Tanaka defending his championship against Bob Armstrong. Now, that's two titans right there battling for the Southeastern Championship, for sure. That is going to be a huge night. You're going to tell us about that next week. You also mentioned in the opening an ace in the hole for Booker's to recover from unexpected wrestler injuries. What, what is that all about? Well, it's, it's like a little booking lesson for fans. Uh, you know, we just talked about it today. It's kind of the focus of today's studcast. The Battle Royal, it's every booker's crutch for injuries. I mean, Battle Royals are a surefire way to jump your house whenever you want to put one of them on the card. And uh, that's truly amazing that it's always been that way. The trick is that you can't give people too many battle royals or they lose their steam. They're not as big of an event. So if you only run one or maybe two battle royals during an entire year, you're going to, every time you book a battle royal, have a good crowd, no matter what. And we were in a position where we needed help at this point. Didn't have the, the baby faces that I needed. We had a new one that was going to get over great. But he wasn't over yet, and we needed a little oomph, a little push. So, you know, I had started out the year before, in 1975, having the Battle Royal in July, in the very middle of the summer. I wanted to do that in 1976, but after that July 4th night, where so many guys got hurt, I had to move my Battle Royal forward into June. So, thankfully, it worked for me. And, uh, well, you know, it, it brought the crowd back over 5,000 again. And it, what it did is the finish in the Battle Royal, it set the stage for next week's studcast with Armstrong and Tanaka for the championship. So it was a great thing to do. It was an easy fix for bookers that had themselves in a rut. And the smart booker didn't overdo it. He didn't book it too often because then it doesn't get you out of the rut. But uh, guys that kind of figure out how to do it, You'd give them maybe two of these a year, and it's a pretty much an instant bigger house. Amazing. Well, you, yeah, you, you've said more than once, leave them wanting more, and that's exactly the concept that you're talking about that. All right, Ron, it's a great time for us to freshen up our cold drink and get that lesson under the learning tree. So what's going on for today? Well, today's learning tree question uh, is a family one about my family, and it's from a gentleman named Joey Jenkins. And uh, Joey asked, can you tell us something about lesser-known Welch family members? By lesser-known, uh, he means that uh, some that went by different last names other than Welch. 
and my thoughts on them as workers. So first, I want to thank Mr. Jenkins for this question, uh, because it forced me to finally take a deep dive into my own family's history, you know, and it was an eye-opening experience for me. Uh, So I discovered more family members than I had formerly known of. You know, I thought we were somewhere around 20, and we're going to end up bigger than that, with a bigger number. So so I want to thank my cousin, too, Roy Lee Welch, and his 95-year-old mother, Lucille, that has the history and knew a lot about my grandfather's time. Uh, she was actually married to Lester Welch, my grandfather's brother, and Lester was 23 years younger than Roy. So she had a lot of history that uh, she could, and names and, and dates and things that she could give to me that I didn't have. And Roy had done so much research that he went to Washington, D.C. and uh, spent time just doing research on my family's history. So to begin this journey, I think I'm going to start with the fact that there were three distinct families in my lineage and in the Welch lineage, basically, all coming from the original Welch family. Uh, Let's start with the introduction to members of the original Welch family that descended from Native American Cherokee Indians. I'm going to back up to a person I didn't even know, I'd never heard of, to my great-great-grandfather, an Indian, full-blooded Indian named John Welch, who was born in southwestern part of Virginia in the 1830s. And uh, in 1838, the entire eastern band of Cherokee Indians were rounded up and forcibly removed from their lands. They were marched a thousand miles west into Oklahoma on what was known as the Trail of Tears. You know, and if uh, fans are out there and people want to look at some history, there's a sad story right there. Uh, 4,000 of them died on this march west into Oklahoma. Uh, John's a young kid at this point, born in the early 1830s. He's just a six, seven-year-old kid. He survived, luckily, that sad event, and he ended up uh, with the Osage Indian tribe on a reservation in the mountainous area of Oklahoma that was given to them because it was considered the worst part of the state. (laughs) So so what they had to do is when they got all these Cherokees, these Indians, and they split them up and sent them to different parts of the state, they picked these rotten areas of the state that nobody wanted to, to settle and, and, and live in. And so they gave this little mountainous area to the Osage Indians. And uh, years later, <laughs> they struck oil on that property. And the Osage Indians became the most, the most wealthy tribe in all of the Indian nation. And uh, Jerry Briscoe, who was in my Super Stud cast number 27, He's the one that made that known to me. I didn't even know that, but he said, you were on Osage. He goes, well, you were part of the richest tribe ever, you know. So <laughs> I found out things I didn't even know, I wasn't even aware of. So John Welch, he marries a half-Indian, half-white woman named Mary Spears in the late 1860s. And John, like many Indians, he leaves the reservation, and he wandered around the western United States. I mean, uh, Indians were wanderers, and, uh, you know, and, they, and, they, and he also was rumored to have a lot of wives. I guess that was the custom, too. If you were wandering around, you end up getting married more than once or whatever. But he was also an entrepreneur. This guy must have been a very sharp guy. In fact, he ended up owning a 30-mile railroad in California. 30 miles. So, so, you know what I mean? <laughs> 
he had a lot going for him. So my great-grandfather comes along. His name is Ed Welch. He's born in 1870 in Texas. And he, too, is a wanderer. And he marries a white woman. Uh, she's a full-blooded white woman. Uh, her name is Bird. And she was from Arkansas uh, and born in 1899. So Ed, he don't follow in his father's footsteps. He's more of a wild and free Indian, like a crazy horse. I mean, he's he's probably like his father in the fact that he probably had more than one wife. I don't doubt that Ed probably did have more than one wife. And the story about Ed is Ed had the opportunity. He was notified when he was probably 20 years old that his dad, John Welch, had died in California and that he could inherit his dad's 30-mile railroad. And Ed didn't even go to California to get the railroad. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's kind of strange, you know. He, he's, he's, he's certainly not got the, uh, the dang push and the, and the, uh, the brains to, to become the big guy that uh, his father did. So Ed follows by having children. And obviously, these are where the first wrestlers in the Welch family are going to come from. So in 1901, my grandfather, Roy Welch, was born in Salisaw, Oklahoma. And uh, Ed and Bird, that's his father and mother, they're going to have seven children. And those children are going to span out over 25 years. They're going to have the first one in 1901 and the last one in 1926. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, you know, that's a, that, that's a feat in itself, a 25-year span of having kids. Yeah. So for fans that have never heard these before, the first five episodes of the Studcast tell a lot of stories about Ed, my great-grandfather, and a heck of a lot of stories about my grandfather, Roy Welch. So if you'd like to go back and listen to those first five episodes, if you've never heard them, I think you'll find them very interesting. Roy's birth was the beginning, obviously, of the Welch wrestling family, and it's going to become the largest wrestling family on earth. So let's take a look at the four sons and the one daughter of that first generation, the sons and daughters of Ed and Bird Welch. Uh, Roy, the oldest, born in Oklahoma, like I said, in 1901. Irby, who is, well, change his name to Herb. Irby is going to become Herb. He's born in 1903 in Marble City, Texas. Jack, uh, his next brother was born in 1905 in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now you can see one's born in Oklahoma, next one in Texas, the next one back to Oklahoma. Uh, Lester is going to be born in 1924, 23 years after Roy in Texas. And all of these four brothers are going to become not just wrestlers, but they're going to become promoters as well. So let's talk about these first four. There was a sister that was born in that family named Bonnie in 1910, that uh, she's going to marry a guy named Virgil Hatfield. And from that marriage is going to come another branch of the Welch wrestling family known as the Fields. So I'm going to start, uh, Mr. Jenkins, with the original family member that I just described from this first iteration and followed that, these lineage of these four brothers and sisters all the way through each of them's children and everything so that I can make this fairly easy, hopefully, to keep up with as we start counting numbers of the members of the Welch family. So let's start at the first. And I'm going to assign a number to each one of these members as I introduce them, so it'll be easy to keep up with the total number. So Roy Welch, he's number one on the list. He's the foundation of the family. He was a great shooter. 
And I'm going to answer Mr. Jenkins' questions about what kind of workers they were. And Roy was a great shooter. He was a great worker. He was a great promoter. And he was a vicious and horrifying (laughs) person, the old-time wrestlers told me. I mean, they were all scared of Roy. Roy was something else. He not only builds one of the biggest wrestling territories in the world, he builds one of the biggest dairies in the South in the same lifetime. He's going to have a son and a daughter. His son is named Edward Welch. That's my father, who changed his name, his wrestling name, to Buddy Fuller soon after he started. So Buddy Fuller is going to be number two. And uh, my dad was a great shooter. He was a great worker. He was a great promoter. He was a builder of territories uh, and drew some of the largest crowds in the history of the sport, especially in the southern United States and out in West and Arizona. Uh, He had two sons, obviously. Uh, One is me. I'm going to be number three. And my brother, Robert is going to be number four. We both wrestled as Fuller, but our names were actually Welch. Obviously, Rob's a great worker and uh, and a good booker. And to this day, he's still involved in the sport. I have a son named Chad Welch. He's going to be number five. He had one professional match in Birmingham, Alabama in 2003. So he is number five in the family that's been in the ring or involved in wrestling. Roy had a daughter named Ruby. She married a man named Bill Golden. Bill is going to be number six. He was a referee, and he was a darn good promoter as well. Bill had a son named Jimmy Golden, and Jimmy Golden is number seven. Jimmy is a fantastic worker, and he still wrestles sometimes, more than 50 years now in the ring. I mean, uh, Jimmy's pretty amazing. Jimmy has a son, number eight, named Bobby Golden. That's a good worker, and he's presently active in wrestling. He still wrestles in the Tennessee area. So from Roy to Bobby Golden, there are eight wrestlers and promoters in Roy's lineage. Let's go to the second brother, Herb Welch. We'll call him number nine. He was a shooter, promoter, great worker, and a great trainer. Just to prove that, he trained Dr. D. David Schultz. He trained the honky-tonk man, and he trained Coco Beware. So. I mean, you know, he got he he has great skills as a trainer. Herb had two sons. Doyle, one, that'll be number 10, was not in the business long, but he was a pretty good worker. His brother, Bobby Jean, number 11, was a worker for a short period of time and then switched over to being a referee. Uh, neither of those two sons were in business long, but they were both in the ring during their time frame in the business. So from Herb's part of the family, from Herb to Bobby Jean, there's another three. That brings the total at this point to 11. Uh, next, we're going to talk about the brother named Jack. He was not a good wrestler, but he was a darn good promoter. Uh, he married a lady wrestler, number 13. Jack is number 12, and his wife, number 13, was a lady wrestler. I never saw any of her matches, and I never saw Jack work actually wrestle. Uh, so I can't make much comments about his ability there. But that brings our total now to 13 in the family. Lester Welch, the last son, the youngest son, is the last brother, obviously the first generation. He was another great shooter, great worker, and a good promoter. He had two sons, Jack, or Jackie as I call him. We're going to call him number 15. And his brother, Roy Welch, Roy Lee Welch, number 16, that I mentioned in the program earlier. And both of those were good workers and promoters. And we're now at 16 members so far. So we finished the first generation with their sister. Her name was Bonnie. She married a man named Virgil Hatfield. 
number 17. He was a referee, never was a wrestler, but it was an excellent referee. They had three sons. And when their son started wrestling, about the same time as my father and Lester started wrestling, they changed their wrestling name from Hatfields to Fields. And all three of these brothers were not tall and uh, as the other family members, and they were also smaller in, in, in body size. So uh, they were built a little different, and they didn't have probably quite as much success as, uh, as Roy's portion of the family and Herb's portion of the families. So the oldest of these three brothers that the Hatfields have, that Virgil and Bonnie uh, have, is uh, Lee Fields. That's number 18. He was a darn good wrestler and a promoter. He also owned a stock car racetrack in Mobile, Alabama. You know, he got into stock car racing, and I think that's why he ended up getting out of wrestling. He had a son named Ricky Fields. That's number 19. Ricky was probably the best wrestler of his three cousins. There are going to be two more cousins here. So the first brother was Lee Fields. The second brother is named Bobby Fields, and he's number 20. And he's a very good worker and a promoter, too. He had two sons, Randy, number 21, and Randy's brother, Shane, number 22. They both started wrestlers, but as I said, they were small, didn't have the size, and they switched from wrestling to referee. So the third brother, Don Fields, the third son, he was a good worker and promoter. His career was cut short by an auto accident when he was fairly young. He had a son, Don Fields is number 23, and Don had a son named Johnny Wayne who is number 24, that worked quite a while. But I never got to see him work. I never got to see Johnny Wayne work, so I can't tell you, uh, Mr. Jenkins, uh, what kind of worker he was. But there you have it. 24 confirmed members of my family have been in the ring or promoted wrestling events. So, uh, Mr. Jenkins, I may have taken your questions beyond what you asked, you know, but but I appreciate the fact that you asked it because it gave me the opportunity to reveal publicly what my entire family's background is and, and the proof that my family is not only the oldest, but they're also the largest wrestling family on the planet. Yeah. So we're now four generations and 100 years in the ring. That is absolutely incredible. On Facebook, simply like the Ron Fuller Tennessee Stud page. And you automatically become friends with a true legend. At Twitter, follow Ron at Ron Fuller Welch. Super Studcast number 29 with Jim Barnett is an all-time record breaker. Any fan with a desire for more knowledge of the sport needs to listen to this one. You got to check it out. Ron, I think you have a surprise for the next Super Studcast, which will be number 30, Super Studcast number 30, to be released on Tuesday, June 16th, do you want to give us a little hint on that? Yeah, yeah, I do. As a matter of fact, I'm really proud of this one. I've been working on this guy for a long, long time. Uh, he's going to be, for me, the bridge between old school and WWE. This guy is a Hall of Famer. He's done it all. He's got more names than probably any wrestler in the history of the sport. Uh, this is Mick Foley, Mankind. Uh, wow. You know, I mean, uh, he is a superstar, and uh, I'm really, really pleased to have him on. And I'm going to have him on with my brother because he and Rob go way, way back. And uh, I think that will just add to the program itself. So I'm really happy about it. That's going to be, as you said, Dave, 
released on Tuesday, June 16th. I look for that one to maybe be another record breaker that'll uh, shove Jim Barnett out of that top spot. Mr. Sacco, Cactus Jack. I'm thinking of all the names, and you're oh, right. Yeah. You had a it's, ton of it's, names. It's ridiculous. <laughs> that's that's one to look forward to right there. All right, so where are we headed to next week? Well, we're going to take a look at the last Knoxville show of June 1976. We're going to basically uh, break it down like we did today's show. Uh, we're going to talk about the Southeastern Championship match between two Hall of Famers, Rob Armstrong and Tor Tanaka, and they are both in the WWE Hall of Fame. And not just that Hall of Fame. Uh, uh, Bob, I know, is in several Hall of Fames, and I'm sure uh, so is uh, Tanaka. So uh, we're going to get a great business lesson for fans next week of how TV shows were recorded and how they aired and then how they were sent from one market to another within each er territory. Going to kind of do a little history lesson for fans that are kind of into how it all worked back in the day. And uh, we're going to then have another great learning tree question uh, as well. And, uh, you know, at this point, Dave, uh, Southeastern is really catching on fire and uh, and it's roaring into the breakout summer of 1976. And I just hope fans keep staying with us uh, because this story gets better and better. No doubt about it. There you go. You've done it again, Ron. Congratulations. This is David Summers thanking you for joining us today and reminding you that Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. <laughs>